We've been singing this morning and uh, about the creation and the creator. Let's go back to a familiar place in the story of creation. So this is Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. There was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth bought, brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs for, and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the, earth, the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God said that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock, over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the faith of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast on the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he had rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, please pray with me as we hear from hear about God's word. Heavenly Father, we look to you as the creator. We also look to you as the revealer. And you have revealed that you have created the heavens and the earth. You have told us how it was you alone. And we look to you alone as the one who can touch our hearts, who can bring about a new creation in us, even as you brought the first creation out of nothing. Pray that you bless my words. I pray that you bless your people through them and that your word would dwell in our hearts and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be here, and it's a pleasure to preach, and it's a, a special pleasure to preach on the very beginning of a series where we'll be looking at uh, the unfolding mystery of God's scriptures through the ages And uh, here we start at the very, very beginning uh, with the story of creation. And it's not often that uh, we hear uh, pagan uh, myths read from the pulpit, but I'm going to be reading just a a few snippets. Uh, To give you guys a little bit of background, the first story that I'm going to read just a little bit from uh, is known as the Enuma Elish were the seven tablets of creation. Uh, it's a Babylonian myth, uh, we think going at least back to the time of Daniel, but more likely that was a copy of a copy of a copy. So we think going all the way back to Abraham and possibly even uh, farther back than that. So we're talking before 2000 BC. I'll also be reading a little snippet from one of the many different uh, Egyptian creation accounts. Um, and uh, this one... Uh, I don't remember the exact time, but also very old. Um, The first story is the story of Marduk. Marduk is the grandson of the the old gods that were uh, out there. Uh, And the gods face a problem. There is a uh, kind of a titan-like goddess monster dragon thing, and that's actually a fairly good translation. When you read it, it actually kind of says dragon monster. Uh, and this dragon monster who is named Tiamat, uh, the, in some ways the mother of all the gods, uh, is upset because the gods living inside her are making a, a ruckus. And she's decided these gods have got to go. Uh, she's going to get rid of them. She's going to destroy them. And the gods are afraid. And the gods have a council. uh, And the gods realize there is a hero among us, a hero named Marduk. Marduk was the most powerful of them, but he needed help. Uh, And in much the same way that in Greek myth you have uh, Hephaestus, making the lightning bolts for Zeus, you have a similar thing with Marduk. Marduk is given magical weapons, and he's given the power of the other gods to go against this dragon monster who threatens them all. And I'll read uh, just a little bit after the battle is over. There's some uh, smashing. uh, There's some cutting. uh, There's some good stuff that kids, if you stuck around, you're... uh, This is... This is interesting stuff. And uh, Marduk takes Tiamat after slaying this monster with help. And his fathers, behold, and they rejoiced and were glad. The presents and gifts they brought unto him when the Lord, that is Marduk, rested gazing upon her dead body while he divided the flesh of the dragon and devised a cunning plan. He split her like a flat fish into two halves. One half of her he established as a covering for heaven. He fixed a bolt. 
he stationed a watchman and bade them not let her waters come forth. Now it goes on, and he also creates the earth out of the other half. And if you want to know where people come from, were the blood of her uh, husband's, or were blood that was taken out of her dead husband, who is an evil demon god. And so why are we so messed up? Well, look at where we came from. Uh, Moving on to another creation story, the Egyptians had a lot of them, lots of variations. Uh, It seems like so did uh, many of the other ones. And we read this about Ra. At the beginning of the world was a waste of water called Nu, and it was the abode of the great father. He was Nu, for he was deep, and he gave being unto the sun god, who hath said, Lo, I am Kapera at dawn, Ra at high noon, and Tum at eventide. The god of brightness first appeared as a shining egg, which floated upon the water's breast, and the spirits of the deep, who were the fathers and the mothers, were with him there. And as he was with Nu, which is spelled N-U, by the way, for they were companions of Nu. Now, Ra was greater than those from whom he arose. Uh, And it goes on to say uh, that uh, other gods come into being. And then came into being Seb, the earth god, and Nut, the goddess of the firmament, who became the parents of Osiris and his consort Isis and of Seth and his consort Nephthys. Ra spake at the beginning of creation and bade the heavens and earth to rise out of the waste of water. In the brightness of his majesty they appeared, and Shu, the uplifter, raised Newt upon high. She formed the vault, she, uh, and, which is arched over Seb, the god of the earth. So what you have here is one god separating two other gods to form the heavens and the earth. What we see in uh, the book of Genesis may have some uh, similarities, and uh, it's worth pointing that out. It's worth saying we don't need to get nervous about that. Um, It's worth saying that as best we understood, that these myths were written down before the account of creation that we have. Uh, Moses, we understand, was probably at Mount Sinai somewhere around 1450 B.C., some say 1225 B.C., but um, our more conservative people say that doesn't give us enough time for the book of Judges. Uh, And so... What do we do if we have these, uh, these stories that are older, these stories that are uh, farther back in antiquity than our stories? Does that threaten us? And I'm going to say, no, it doesn't. Uh, what I'm going to say it does do is it frames for us what exactly is going on and what's being communicated in the book of Genesis when we have a very different picture of creation. You might have noticed, you might not have thought this at the time, but you might have noticed there's no one smashing anybody else in the book of Genesis chapter 1. Likewise, when God takes the firmament and hangs it up, when he takes the sky and places it and divides it from the earth, uh, the earth is not a god, nor is the sky a god, nor is there any other god present other than the one true God. There's no pre-existent matter. God doesn't show up floating on the water in an egg. Uh, The universe is not made from a part of another God or of God himself. God doesn't uh, take some of his hair or uh, chop off a finger or anything like that. There's none of that. Instead, the picture that we see is that God is in absolute control. We see absolute peace, absolute order, absolute perfection. And whereas these pagan stories, you have either a battle or procreation of some sort, uh, 
or uh, God's working together. Here it is God alone conducting the universe, starting out with nothing, bringing things into being with the word of his power. And at the end, being able to say, behold, it is very good. Now we're looking at the unfolding mystery, so it's worth saying that we're looking at Genesis from two angles today. We're looking at what actually happened, and we're also looking at how does this fit into the grand story. And one of the reasons why it's worth pausing and looking at these pagan accounts is, uh, if you remember, uh, Israel is coming out of Egypt. Uh, Abraham came out of of the Chaldeans, that is, of Babylonia. These are myths that they would have been exposed to, and God is setting them straight. Why is there some similarity? He's speaking in a way that they would understand. Uh, They would have very quickly noticed, hey, this is a different story than we heard in Egypt. Uh, Where's the cow god? Uh, But instead, God is the sole creator and the sole hero who brings about creation on his own. The first readers were Israelites, and God speaks into their cultural surroundings. And uh, as we focus today, we're not going to focus much on how did God do it. Uh, I I do want to kind of take a a planned tangent uh, to address some of the questions that might be on your mind. But for the most part, we're not going to be very concerned with how God did it or how long God took or anything like that. Instead, we're looking at what's being communicated about God and about the result of creation. And we're going to notice a few things. First, as I already said, God is the sole creator and the sole hero of the entire book of Genesis of the creation story itself, and then of the whole Bible. From beginning to end, God stands as the hero. Secondly, we're going to notice that God is supremely good and that he creates a world that is very good. Uh, There are no mistakes. There are no cracks. uh, There are no obvious uh, loopholes or uh, places where there's a chink in the fabric of creation, so that by Genesis 1.17, we're going, oh, this is not going to go well. There's none of that. Uh, God creates a good world. And we're also going to be working on beginning an understanding of God is good and in control that will set us up later to be able to understand the difficulties of the fall, of the corruption that comes into the world of the reality of life under the sun and in this present evil age. Uh, One of the reflections uh, this week, if you were to turn in your bulletin, you might have read this. This is on the second, or page four. Thomas Aquinas says, any error about creation leads to an error about God. A professor of mine used to say that uh, In a similar way, any error you have about creation and about God as creator is going to affect your understanding of God as redeemer, uh, of who it's going to wreck for us who God is. It's going to wreck for us what this world is. And it's worth getting straight from the very beginning that God is good and that God is supremely in control. You hold those things firmly, and when you're faced with tragedy, uh, it will be much easier to say, okay, I know God is good. I know God is in control. What I see makes no sense at all. But I know God is good, and I know he's promised that everything works for the good of those who love him. If we don't get that right, then we're faced with tragedy, and we say, I'm not sure that God is good. And very quickly, we can begin to doubt and, uh, and struggle more than, more than we need to. Uh, doesn't mean that the earth, or sorry, doesn't mean that the world will be an easier place for us, 
It just means we'll be standing on a firmer foundation. As we uh, seek to understand creation, I do want to, like I said, take a brief tangent. Uh, There's so much going on in the book of Genesis. Uh, It's perhaps worth saying that in seminary I took an entire class on Genesis and had another class that uh, really could have been called a a course on Genesis 1 through 12, but it was called the Pentateuch. Uh, And uh, we never got to Exodus. and these are, you know, su- this is such an important text. There's so much going on. There's so much uh, to ask. There's so much that we want answers to. And uh, we don't always get the exact answers that we want. Um, as we do approach this, as we look at the story that Bill read for us, uh, again, I want to stress that this was written first to Israelites which is to say that this was not written in the 1900s, or sorry, 1800s, uh, you know, right after Darwin published The Origin of the Species. Uh, this is not a text that was originally set up to answer questions about modern science. Now, I would say that there is something to be said that God does anticipate those things, and the word of God stands up to it, but uh, the primary, primary purpose of Genesis 1 is not to uh, crush evolution as a theory. Uh, in the same way, we can say that uh, you know, Genesis 1 is not written the way that we would want to write it. We would like it to be written in such a way that everything makes sense, that God tells us, Okay, now when I, when I separated the, the sky and the land, what, that, what was going on was actually just the, the changing of the atmosphere. Um, and we want to say, but God, was that because of algae in the waters? Or you know, it says you didn't do plants until later. We really wish some of those questions were answered. They're, they're not really done. Um, and as I, uh, you know, reading from these other uh, pagan text, we can see there is some similarity. And that again brings us to uh, the place where we understand that Genesis is written in the ancient world and that it's written to answer questions that they would have had. Now, it's a mistake to think that they were not very clever or that they would have not had some of the same questions that we do. Um, but as we look at it, Throughout history, people have had questions about how did this work out? And today we live in a time when some, even some Christians, want to say, look, this is just a story. That's all it is. It's an everyman story. We're getting the story that sets up God as creator, um, Satan is evil, man has fallen. But none of it's actually true. It's just set up so that we have some understanding of things uh, things get real maybe later, uh, sometime around David, uh, depending on who you talk to. You know, there are even Christians who talk that way. Um, now, on the other hand, you have people who say, I believe X about creation, and if you believe any differently, then you are not a real Christian. Uh, I've had a few conversations like that, uh, and... Now, there are those who would say you have to believe in 24-hour days. There are those who say you, you, know, you, you can't believe that there was any change in the species at all. Uh, I don't want to get into that in great depth, but I do want to say that humility will go a long way uh, in our understanding of Genesis, and our ability to get along with other Christians who believe things that are a little bit different than us. Uh, To go back to Augustine, Augustine actually believed that God created the world in a moment, that it was a little bit blasphemous to say that God needed a whole week, uh, and that the days are put in the text to help our limited understanding uh, and our weak minds. Uh, So, My point is not that we have to agree with him. Uh, You may disagree. That's okay. But as far back as Augustine and even farther back, there were Christians who were struggling to figure out 
How does Genesis work? Um, when it comes to the age of the, the world, you can even push that back. How old is the world? Uh, you know, it doesn't say, in the beginning, comma, 8,000 BC, comma, God created the heavens and the earth. Nor does it say in the beginning, comma, 5 billion BC, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, there's a lot of difficulty in trying to figure out how old is the world. Genesis doesn't give us a real clear answer. And uh, if you study the genealogies, uh, it doesn't take long. Um, you can do this yourself by comparing genealogies in uh, the book of Chronicles to uh, the genealogy of Jesus. There are gaps in the genealogy of Jesus. It's set up nicely into these groups of seven, but there are gaps. And that's okay. Uh, the point Matthew has is not to give us every single uh, ancestor of Jesus, and the ancient world wasn't all that concerned with uh, ancestors who weren't that important. So you might skip a few generations. Uh, you might skip who knows how many. Um, and uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, a guy who was a, a teacher in the 70s, uh, a very good teacher, he says we have no ability to really fix dates before Abraham. Uh, once you get to Abraham, you can, you can say, okay, we can fix the dates. But you go before, uh, when it says things like, uh, you know, this guy was descended from... Ter or, uh, from Enoch. Well, do we mean grandfather, great-grandfather, father? The ancient world, they didn't worry too much about that. So one of the things I want to say is that that sets us up to be really comfortable with scientific claims. It means we don't have to uh, throw up our arms every time there's a new uh, carbon dating of, of something. Now, it also means that I'm not reacting to a scientific claim in, in making a statement like that. Um, if we understand that the Bible was meant to answer all these questions, then, well, then we expect those answers, and, and if they're challenged, we're, we're in a pickle where we have to decide, science or the Bible. Um, now, I'm always going to answer the Bible first, but as Christians, we don't need to fear science and... Uh, we also don't need to be too worked up if science gets proved wrong, which has happened a few times, and, uh, and we can trust that what we have create, uh, communicated to us in Genesis is, is true and gives us what we need to know. Now, when we talk about the genre of Genesis, uh, and I know I'm going in a little bit bullet point fashion here, uh, what we have is a creation story. Now, one of the difficulties of interpreting Genesis 1 is we don't have any other passages like Genesis 1, except maybe Job. Um, and Job is very different. Uh, but we actually do have an account of some of creation, at least, in Job. We also have some of the Psalms mention creation. But we have lots of narratives. We have lots of parables. We have lots of epistles, and we can compare them. We can say, how do we... Uh, how do we interpret this? Don't have many passages like Genesis 1. It's a creation story. Um, myth is probably the wrong term, though some have wanted to call it a Christian myth. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about a true myth. Uh, but when you compare this to those other creation accounts that I read or, or other uh, creation stories in the world, there is some similarity, and it's a familiar genre. And again, what sticks out is that God is in control. Um, but understanding the genre of Genesis 1 will, again, keep us from trying to wrestle the text into submission with something that we bring to the text. We want to let the text communicate what it was meant to communicate. And remembering that Genesis 1 is really God introducing himself to the Israelites uh, will help us understand uh, what's going on. Now, Genesis 1 also sets us up for the Trinity. We don't have explicit Trinitarian 
wording, though we do have God creating and the Spirit of God hovering. And of course, in John chapter 1, we have the Word of God. We certainly have the Word of God present in Genesis 1. In John 1, we learn that's Jesus, uh, God the Son, the Word. Uh, The Word was with God in the beginning when everything was called into being. A couple other things that we can say for sure about creation. One is that God did it by his word. What does that mean? Tough to say. Um, A divine word, what does that look like? God doesn't have a mouth. Uh, But again, in John chapter 1, things are made through the word. God calls it into being. And again, what that's communicating to us is there's no sword. There's no procreation. This is God speaking to nothing. And by the power of God's word, something comes into being. Uh, We call that uh, divine fiat, God's command, God's speaking things into being. And he does it ex nihilo, a Latin phrase, out of nothing. Uh, God is not starting with a pile of uh, eternal Legos and putting them together. This is not a cycle. This is a linear story. God has a a beginning to the universe. And then you want to ask the question, everyone wants to ask the question, well, what was going on before that? And then you say, well, time was created at the beginning. God was there before time. Stay too long on this, your head will hurt. Uh, Trust that God is good, that God is beyond the universe we live in. Um, and uh, we can understand that what, when God creates, uh, we do not inhabit God. The, the world is not his body. Uh, God is not tied to his creation in the sense that we harm the earth, we harm God. None of that. Um, God is separate from his creation, but present with his creation. Now, the other thing that Genesis 1 does is it sets up realms and rulers or kings and kingdoms. And you you hear this in the reading that on the first day, it's day and night. And then day four, sun, moon, and stars. Uh, The purpose is not necessarily to tell us that the sun was created later. It may be. I'm open to that. Uh, But... What does you know, morning and evening mean if it's not the sun going up and down? Um, there are a lot of questions here, and one of the things I want to do is draw out those complexities. And you know, These are all questions that we ask when we're about five years old and we get told, well, it's just that way. Stop asking questions and go finish your SpaghettiOs. Uh, it's okay to ask these questions, uh, and it's also okay to understand that if you're... You know, talking with a non-Christian, you might get asked the question, well, you know, how can you believe that stuff? The sun is created on day four. Well, on one hand, God can do creation however he wants. Uh, And on the other, God's relationship to time is a complicated thing. Uh, And we can have some real humility here. And like I said, while we can say that God created out of nothing and by the word of his power, There's a lot of questions about how God did it. And uh, God's words to Job in Job 38 are helpful. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings, on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Uh, It's worth saying I was not there. Uh, It's worth saying that there's a lot we don't understand. Uh, And while we can be very committed to God creating uh, the world out of nothing and speaking it into being, Our own denomination uh, has not said you must have this particular understanding of Genesis 1 and time. Uh, 
Now, the other thing that we don't see, and this is the last part of my tangent, is we don't see any evil. So we're going to be left with the question of where does evil come from? Uh, now, we can say, well, it, you know, because of Adam's fall, well, to be fair, the serpent is already wicked, and he just shows up that way. Satan's rebellion is not commented on. How does it happen? When does it happen? Uh, we don't know very much. There are a few passages in uh, the prophets referring to uh, pagan kings that seem to refer to uh, Satan's rebellion, but the, the first spark of evil and how that comes into a perfect world uh, is not a question that's answered to the uh, satisfaction of philosophers. Uh, the theological answer, the theologian is okay with, well, God said it, it's okay. And the philosopher would like to know more, and we don't necessarily get that answer. Well, that's the end of point one. Uh, points two and three will be a little bit shorter. Um, and the, the second thing I want to talk about in all of this is, now that we've talked about creation being set into being and what that communicates is that as much as creation was created in a good, orderly, peaceful way, the result is very good. When God creates light and dark, he says, that's good. When he separates the sky and the land, he says, that's good. Uh, fish and crawly thingies, those are good. And then the creation of a man on the sixth day, and everything is finished, and God says, behold, this is very good. Uh, again, you look to the pagan myths, things are not very good. Um, and creation is a mess from the beginning. It's the result of strife or uh, immorality even. Uh, here, it's good. Nothing resists God in the beginning. Nothing resists God in the process or in the result. The world is a place of complete order and complete peace. Now, interestingly, there is room to grow. Uh, everything is set up as it should be, and yet... Man has a task. Fill the earth and subdue it. One way to understand this is God, in chapter 2, places Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden, and he says, make the rest of the world like this place. Uh, and you know, very often I think we kind of have this in the back of our mind that that would look somewhat like uh, the Swiss family Robinson, lots of coconuts, lots of uh, living in trees maybe, um, and we think, wow, we, we're sure more advanced than that. We have the iPhone. Uh, and it's worth saying, my goodness, what could Adam have done with his hands, with his mind, with a creation that would have obeyed him, uh, with a mind that was far freer from sin and difficulty than ours? Uh, in that world, the refrain of the book of Ecclesiastes is not present. All is not vanity. The meaninglessness comes because of an act of Adam. Uh, by, and uh, by the way, the word vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, havel, havel, havelim, vanity of vanities, happens to be the same as the name of another man named Havel, uh, or Abel, as we put it into English. And uh, I would suggest that that's a, an, a reflection of Eve's understanding. Watching her, son, her first son, Cain, Cain, here he is. Apparently she thought this was the Messiah, okay? Gave birth, that was difficult. Uh, curse is over. Here's Cain. Oh, no. By her, the second son, vanity enters the world. But 
But when we talk about this world, uh, that is, before the fall, everything is as it should be. Nothing is out of place. There is no vanity. Uh, there is certainly no human death. Uh, there are questions between theologians about, you know, was there animal death? Was it just prettier? Uh, that is, less ugly? Uh, would everything have been in its place? Uh, I can't answer that, but we can say the world was perfect. And the best part, God was present without alienation, without condemnation. Adam and Eve were able to stand around naked with no shame, not ashamed before God, not ashamed before each other. There was no distance between other humans. There was no distance between them and God. And so we see Adam, the pinnacle of creation, the labor of love, in a place where all is well. And God does two things. First, he sits back and uh, he pronounces a blessing. Creation is not just good, it is very good. This same type of blessing, as Pastor Todd reflected earlier this week, to me, we get the same kind of statement much, much later, and not until then, when the heavens part at Jesus' baptism, and, G- and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's not till then where we get another very good. Now, second, God rests, and we've talked about that recently in talking about the Sabbath, This is not a rest of weariness. There was no battle. There was no resistance. This is the kind of rest we have when we finish a really good meal and we're done stirring and we're done cleaning up after ourselves and we sit back and we say, I like this. Uh, This wine reduction sauce, that was was worth waiting for. Uh, This this chocolate souffle... uh, Still still standing. It's an excellent thing. And uh, the participation in it, the delight in it, is not falling over asleep. It is a delight. And that is the picture of God's rest. It is the picture of rest that we will have one day uh, when, uh, when God brings all things to completion. Now, when we seek to apply these things, a couple things come out. Um, looking at the world as it should have been, we can say that our world has fallen, but it is still the world that God has made. And so we can say that the world belongs to God, and as the second uh, reflection says in the bulletin, there is, not a, there is no corner of the world where, where it is not Jesus' world. And because of that, you can eat chocolate cake, and it does not belong to the devil. Uh, the things of this world are not evil in themselves. We can participate. We can be engaged. Uh, We can understand that this world rightly belongs to God, and we have a, a role as Christians in bringing it back into that place. Second application is understanding that God loves the world. It is his, uh, and he means to bring it back from corruption to a glory that is even better than that of Eden. Uh, Romans talks about the beginnings of birth pains, about how this world has been subjected, but it's going to be brought back. Uh, All creation is longing for redemption. Of course, the fact of redemption leads us to my third point. We have a good but delayed destination. There was nothing in our text today that suggests any of that. uh, God did not say, things are very good, but I can tell that Adam has a little little mischievous spirit in him. Uh, Should have made him different. Uh, how, How the fall takes place is one of the great paradoxes of the Bible and perhaps the greatest question that people have to come uh, into or come to grips with when we read the Genesis account. 
In one sense, it was never meant to be the way that it is now. God's original plan uh, was not that we should suffer. Now, here's where the paradox comes into play, because it was God's plan all along that it would turn out this way. And that sounds like a total contradiction, uh, and yet we have to hold both. Again, we have to hold that God is good and God is in complete control. Going back to Augustine again, he gives this answer. For God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist. Uh, It's tough to, to grapple with that, but basically what this is saying is, look, trust that God... What God is doing is good. Trust that even though it hurts now, we're getting to a really good destination. Uh, and if we're able to trust the one who's, who's driving, we're able to sit back and, and relax a little better. Uh, may not be a comfortable ride, but we know we're getting to a good place. Uh, but again, one of the strangest paradoxes of the Bible is that it is this way. God, in a sense, planned the fall. Can you say that? God is not the author of evil, and yet everything is happening as God ordained it. Romans 9 gets into that a little bit. We can't blame the potter for the condition of the clay. Um, And I know we're uh, running out of time, so I'm going to try to wrap us up with a a couple last thoughts. Uh, One is that we're going to see a long unfolding process. Uh, In the next couple chapters, we're going to see that Eve is deceived. Adam, by the way, is not. He's standing there watching all this happen. Who knows what's going on in his mind? It's a perfect mind. Uh, He should have had the good sense to uh, throw the snake out or get a shovel and uh, take care of the snake, he sat there and said, no, this is interesting. I think I'll do what my wife did. Uh, We don't understand that. We don't understand completely why God chose it to do it that way. Couldn't God have done it another way? Um, I kind of think so. Uh, He's all-powerful. But I trust that God is good and that what he's doing is the best. We're going to see that things are going to drag out. I mentioned Eve naming her second son Abel. Can you imagine going from Eden, where everything is as it should be, and then living 930 years, watching your first son kill your second son, and then an entire line of humanity watching your grandchildren rebel? your great-grandchildren, your great-great-great-grandchildren, an entire town descended from you in rebellion against God to the point where by the time your life is over, only a few descendants of Seth are following God. Uh, It had to be an incredible burden for Adam and Eve as they watch this unfold. And as we read, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And then there are some promises. He will crush the head of the serpent. Abraham, I'm going to give you land and descendants, and you're going to be a blessing to all nations. David, your kingship is going to last forever. I'll make a new covenant, one not like the old covenant, where you will be my people and I will be your God. We see this long unfolding, and of course it's with Jesus that we see another Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Christ making all alive just as Adam brought death to everyone. The last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. Jesus undoes the curse, and it's going to take a while. But the Bible ends much as it began, with words in the book of Revelation 
where once again we have a tree of life present, where once again God is dwelling with his people, where we can hear God uh, speak words not of condemnation but of blessing. Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It takes a long time to get there in the Bible. It's going to take us a bit longer to get there in history. But we can be certain that the God who created the world is preparing a new place for us. As Jesus said, he is going to prepare a place for us. We can understand that if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you believe that the Creator became a man to die for you, then it is a free gift of the gospel that you believe that all you have to do is confess your sinfulness uh, and believe, much as we saw little Eliza doing earlier. Uh, It's that simple. Believe, trust, repent, and the reality of the new heavens and the new earth will be yours. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing your plan to us. Thank you for creating a world that is very good. And though we have wrecked it, and though by our continued actions we still do things that are harmful, we thank you that you have redeemed it and that one day you will renew it completely and that you will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.